What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 88. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, thanks so much for all the great reviews you posted for What Should I Read Next. It means so much to me and for the show. Today, we're announcing the winners for the Deluxe Reading Journal Kit Giveaway. Stay tuned till the end of the episode and we'll announce the five winners. And the giveaway may be over, but you can still leave a review anytime. Head straight to Apple Podcasts or to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash iTunes to leave yours. We are grateful. Thank you so much. And I have a lot of thanks to share today. Thank you so much again for your enthusiasm and your pre-orders for my book, Reading People, coming this September 19th. The subtitle of that book is How Seeing the World Through the Lens of Personality Changes Everything, because this is the story of how my long journey digging into seven popular personality frameworks changed my life for the better, and how you can put those frameworks to work for yourself to make real, lasting change in your life, in your work, and in your relationships without going through quite so many hard knocks yourself like I did. To get yourself in the mood for all things personality, pop over to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash quiz to take our reading personality quiz. It's fast and free and easy to take and hopefully a lot of fun as well. Go to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash quiz to find out which one of nine reading personality types best describes you. If you want to know more about your reading personality, I made a class for you where I spend an hour diving deeper into all nine types and I give each set of readers their own book recommendations. That class is available for purchase in the shop at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash shop. It's $15 or you can get it for free when you pre-order Reading People. You also get a free audiobook download of the book when it comes out on September 19th. This is a terrific deal and a rare opportunity to get the book in two different formats, plus my reading personality class at no additional cost. After you pre-order the book, go to readingpeoplebook.com. All the information on the pre-order bonuses is there. In today's episode, I'm talking with Amina Brown, a spoken word poet who writes all her poems to jazz music. When she was a little girl, Amina dreamed of becoming a stand-up comedian, and that doesn't seem like such a stretch to me after talking with her. 
She brought a lot of big laughs to our conversation today as we discussed our favorite comedic memoirs by fabulously funny women, pushing the limits of a book's form, big feelings in books we just can't find the words for, and the satisfaction of a lighter topic, smartly written. Plus, I give a book recommendation that isn't a book at all. I really want to say I'm jazzed to get into this episode, but I'm not sure you'll forgive me. Either way, let's get started. Amina, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. Okay, do you remember that we've met in person like forever ago? Oh my gosh, we did meet. But I'm trying to remember where was it we met? It was at a conference, right? Am I lying? It was, and it's going to be way easier for me to remember because back, I think it was 2012 and I think it was Nashville. And the reason I can remember is because it was the first time I'd met internet people online and it was super weird and different and new for me, but you were on the stage. So it was clearly not your first, can I say rodeo or am I just supposed to say like internet conference thing? I think rodeo is a thing. I, I think that's a thing. It was not your first rodeo. Yeah, that's a thing. Mm hmm. I can be with it. You were on the stage doing spoken word performance. It was Killer Tribes in Nashville. <gasps> Killer Tribes! I mean, you were there, right? I'm not just totally making this up. No, I was there, but I think when I went, it was in Atlanta. I don't know that I ever went to Killer Tribes when it was in Nashville. It came to Atlanta one year, I remember. So it was the next year. And we met, and we must have met that year, because that's the only year I went. See, it wasn't my first time, and it still made a big impression on me. That's so cool. Mmm. That's right. So that was my first introduction to you, which the listeners haven't heard. So can you just launch from there? Tell us what you do, because it's really cool to see you perform. Really cool. And I don't know if you remember what you did. I don't think it would have mattered to me what you did, because it was just not not the kind of thing I see on my typical weekend. So it really made an impression on me. But in your own words, like, tell us what you do professionally. Yeah, um, I am a spoken word poet professionally, which means I perform what, what I would say spoken word to me means it's it's performance poetry. It is poetry, but it is definitely written to be memorized and orated. Uh, it tends to be sort of a bigger performance of what you've written on the page. And definitely I'm in a generation of poets very influenced by hip hop, too. So I do not rap. I do not rap but I am very influenced by hip hop culture. So a lot of that wordplay from hip hop music makes its way into the poems too. Can you tell me a little more about that wordplay? Yeah, I think, um, I think I would at least say for my form of spoken word, it's like three things have come together now that I think are, are the biggest creators of what my voice sounds like as a poet. One of those is definitely hip hop culture. It's, it's the use of, uh, this creative way of the simile and the metaphor and the way those rhymes kind of stack on top of each other, that definitely finds its way into my poems. I write all of my poems to jazz music. So there is this this rhythm in it. It's not the same like regular rhythm that, you know, you would hear a rapper, you know, rhyming over a beat like that. But it is this inherent rhythm that I feel when I'm writing that I definitely like lean into when I'm performing. And I think the other thing that is right there, too, is monologue either could be inspired by a comedian type of monologue or could be a very theater inspired monologue. I feel like my version of spoken word sort of is those three things. If those three things came together and had a love child, 
that is what my spoken word poems sound like. Those are my favorite bookish analogy. Like imagine a little bit of this author and a little bit of this author with a little bit of this time period and boom, magic. How long have you been doing what you're doing? 20 years this year. Can you believe that? 20 years. I feel so old every time I say it. Well, that's a long time. Oh my gosh. I imagine that we're probably approximately in the same range. But when I see those things about like, oh, the kids born in X year are now getting their driver's license, it makes me feel antique. But what I'm really curious about in your 20 years date is you can date to the year when you started composing spoken word poetry. Yeah, yeah, because I wrote poetry for a long time just as a kid. Started around junior high, and you know how junior high is such a, a weird time for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> that was a generous way to put that. Yeah, so I think I just, I took to writing and journaling a lot during that time as I'm trying to process all my awkwardness, I guess. So I wrote poems during that time, and then uh, in 96, I think it was 96, uh, into 97, I remember watching this movie called Love Jones. And in the movie, uh, Lorenz Tate plays one of the central characters and his character that he plays is a spoken word poet. So that was my first time sort of seeing in this cinematic way, you know, here's this poet there. I mean, it's very beatnik scene, you know, it's this poet there in this um, open mic place in Chicago and he's there with the guy playing upright bass, you know, behind him. I mean, it's, it's all this stuff. And so that's what made me want to start uh, experimenting with that form. And I already loved hip hop and loved writing rap verses, even though I wasn't super good at it. But spoke a word kind of gave me an opportunity to do both things that I loved. I could do some hip hop sort of wordplay and language use, but also I do what I loved about poetry too. Do you know what it was 20 years ago that made you watch that movie? Because it's so interesting how a film changed your life like that. Yeah, right. Well, I think it was it was definitely this like, quintessential young black romantic comedy and it was starring two big stars at the time in their prime you know Lorenz Tate and Nia Long played uh the woman in in the film in their love story so it was just beautiful to get a chance to see I mean of course they were you know obviously much older than me but you know my high school self's imagining like oh this is what my life would be like you know when I'm in my 20s I'll have all of these like really artistic you know renaissance friends and we'll drink wine at each other's homes and you know play games that smart people play and you know we'll go to poetry events and go to hear live jazz and whatever that was you know so I think Oh, I can see it. I think that film itself was just quintessential for a lot of reasons at that point culturally and just it showing this this beautiful this beautiful and complicated love story between this black man and this black woman. I think that made the film itself so powerful and then that he was a poet and she was a photographer and you're sort of seeing them also wrestle this out as two creative people is really really interesting. Now 20 years later do those same themes resonate with you? Especially the creative people wrestling it out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously now, like being in my 30s, you're like, oh, that's not quite how being adult an adult is. But okay, <laughs> you know, you've got a, a little more information than you had when you were in high school. But yeah, I think a lot of that um, idea still resonates with me. I mean, I, I can't say that my dinner parties look anything <laughs> as immaculate as the dinner parties were in that film. Do you have dinner parties? Because you're up on me. If you, We don't at least call them that. No, and I don't know that I would 
I, I think my joints are a lot like more informal. It's like, hey, there's going to be food and wine. So just come over and we'll talk about things, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sort of invitation. And like people get here and I always tell them like, it's because we love you that, that we don't fully clean up our house. You know, like I want you to come visit. But if we love you, we just leave like dishes in the sink so you know that you're loved, that we didn't feel like we had to, you know. I'd like to thank that line works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like family come over anytime. <laughs> Tell me about wrestling it out. Is that something you still feel like you're doing in your work or in your, <sighs> you, well, you can make of that what you will. I, I mean, I think, I think wrestling it out is, is the role of the creative. I feel like, I feel like any, any person that is either working in a creative field or is dabbling in the work of creativity. I don't think that you can be creative without the wrestling. I think some of that wrestling is with our own insecurities. I know I always wrestle with that before I write. And some of that wrestling is with what, uh, in this case that we're talking about poetry, but even in, in nonfiction writing, I encountered this. I wrestle with what the story is saying it wants to be and what I want it to be. And sometimes those are not the same. And that in the end, I need to yield to what the story or the poem says it wants to be. And that's always this like really interesting process. And there's a little bit of fighting that goes on <laughs> sometimes in that case. So I think the wrestling is always there. I just think uh, if you wrestle well, then the results in the end are always good and creative, you know. For our listeners who will never write poetry, can you tell us about what that looks like for you when you have what you want the work to be and when the work wants to be something else. Can you just give us an example of a time when that happened and what that looked like? Uh, one example I can think of is I was writing a poem to a particular person. It was one of those times that I had started writing this like really generic kind of poem. And as I'm writing the poem, it just it just, it came to me like, uh, this poem is not really about this topic right here. I think I was going to write a poem about uh, forgiveness. And as I was writing that poem, the poem just kept falling flat, you know, and it felt like the poem is trying to say, this poem isn't about forgiveness. It's about you forgiving someone. So then having to embark on the journey of writing the poem now, uh, in first and second person, instead of third person there, you know, from my perspective, but also speaking to this person that I need to forgive and wanting to be done with the poem. There were so many times I just wrote two lines that seemed like a good ending. And I was just like, this poem is finished. And the poem was like, I'm sorry, I'm not finished. You know, so sometimes my it's such a polite poem <laughs> when it's telling you you're wrong. Yeah, sorry, I'm not finished. There's more to do. There's more to do here. And some of my other poet friends and I, we always say sometimes you are writing the poem and sometimes the poem is writing you. The poem is telling you, especially when it's personal work like that, it's it's telling you what your soul needs also and how that is involved in what the poem becomes. So I had to just sort of stick in there with that poem and keep writing and keep writing and keep writing until that poem said, now, now the poem is done. And now you've said what you needed to say too. So that happened to be a, a bit of a unique one in the sense that it was a personal thing in my life as well as a work of literature, so to speak. Yeah. I would love to hear more about your process. Can we do that through the lens of your upcoming book? Because I'm dying to ask you about this cover. 
So you have a book coming out on November 7th. I do. November 7th. Yes. I'm so excited. I bet. I bet. And well, I'm excited on many levels, but also I'm so excited for you that you're working with Carolyn McCready, who was actually a guest on the podcast. I think she was episode 69, but I just love her. And she has brought some amazing books into the world as her role as editor. So I'm looking at the cover of How to Fix a Broken Record. I'm so excited about this book. Can you tell us how it came into being and what I'm going to find when I crack it open on November 7th and not a day later? Because I can't wait. Whoop, whoop, whoop. I'm so excited. Um, actually, the form of this book, I was going to sort of write a traditional uh, like 10 to 14 sort of traditional length chapters, I guess. And I don't know, I started kind of getting ready to organize myself after I'd finished my proposal and all that. I started kind of getting ready to organize, okay, now that you're sitting here about to write this book, how are you going to do that? And something about that form didn't feel right. I felt like I needed shorter chapters and the opportunity to play around with nonfiction form a bit. And so I just said, oh, well, let me just try it. And then if Carolyn, who is, who is my editor, <laughs> I was like, if she thinks this is a terrible idea, I guess she'll tell me. <laughs> so I just tried to think of um, uh, this idea of how to fix a broken record, which actually the idea for that came to me from uh, a conversation that I had with my dad, which is just so uh, interesting and inspiring in a lot of ways because it was a hard conversation that my dad and I were having, but my dad is also a musician and some of the first records I ever listened to as a kid, I listened to with him, you know, uh, but there was something about our conversation that made me think about all these messages that had been going on in my head about myself, about life, about love, that were just running rampant, very negative messaging. And there was something about the conversation he and I had that I felt like one of those messages stopped playing. And I left that conversation with him and I said, that is supposed to be the theme of this book. So then I went, okay, well now I gotta expand that idea. A, how do you fix that broken record? <laughs> you know, that's running rampant in your mind, all those negative broken messages, you know, how do you fix them? But what are the areas in my life? And particularly this book focuses on the first few years of my thirties. So what have I found in my thirties are the areas where my broken records showed up. So that turned into the seven sections of the book. And each section has several uh, short essays and lists <laughs> and musings. <laughs> There's all sorts of things under those topics. But uh, the opportunity to talk about um, the journey of learning to love myself, still learning that um, dating and marriage and finding home. You were talking about moving and, and I've moved a lot in life and my husband and I bought a home. So our first home. And so we were just musing on some of those things. I wanted to write about that in the book. So there are sections of my life there that I wanted to talk about where those broken records show up and how did they get fixed? Now, what is cracking you up as you reference the musings? I think, <laughs> I think it's making me laugh because <laughs> Because I, oh, in the lists, I couldn't think of the other word, the list, you said lists and you started yeah, just cracking yourself yeah. up. There's like a couple of lists, like there's like a whole list on like, I think I have one uh, shorter chapter that's on like, these are the reasons I love social media. And then like 
you know, the next chapter is like, here's a list of the reasons why I hate social media. And it's the worst thing that ever happened to me. You know, like there's definitely some chapters like that alongside some chapters of really tough things that happened in life to you. But I, I wanted to be able to write a mix of things in this book. And some of them just still make me laugh out loud. I hope they make the reader laugh too. And some of them I hope are places for thought and places to feel some of those, you know, deep emotions too. What's it like for you as a poet to write this book of nonfiction? Is it very, is it very natural, a different part of your brain? Or is it work on a whole nother level or option C? The process is definitely very different from writing poetry, because when I'm writing poetry, I can't sit down and say, I will write a thousand words today. Like poems do not work like that <laughs> at all. How do, how do poems work? Uh, some days you may sit down and say, I'm going to write. Normally what I'll do is I'm going to write poetry for, you know, two or three hours today. And I just have a big stack of all my unfinished poems and I just leaf through them to see who wants to get finished that day. And sometimes two lines will come in an hour. (laughs) And then some, some days in that three hours, you finished a poem, you know, but you don't have really any control over how that goes. And sometimes that productivity, that two lines is actually really great productivity. Whereas in nonfiction writing, you have such a larger piece of work to try and finish. If you are finishing two lines, you know, (laughs) every three days or something, you'd never get your book finished. And I find with this book, one of the things that really makes me, made me really excited to write about it and uh, makes me excited for readers to get to read it now. You know, you're in your room writing. Now you're like, somebody's going to read this now. I think it makes me really happy because I feel like it, I was very true to my voice in this nonfiction book. So that made it fun. That that made it very different from writing poetry in the sense that I had a lot more moments of getting to a point in the book and realizing, oh, there's part of this story that mm, I have to tell that I don't want to tell. You know, there's definitely some frustrating moments like that uh, where I had to sort of push past those feelings and write the story anyway, even when it hurt it to write, even when it was hard to write. And there were some chapters, honestly, that were so much fun to write. Um, One of the essays in this book is a letter to myself on my wedding night. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) There were so many things I wanted to tell Amina, (laughs) wanted to tell her on her wedding night. So that was a lot of fun. Amina, what are you reading while you're writing this? I mean, do you read different things while you're writing nonfiction as opposed to writing poetry? What's your reading life like? Make of that what you will. I do not read while I'm writing nonfiction, I have to just write. So I tend to actually listen to a lot more music during that time. But normally when I'm not writing nonfiction, I, I read, I tend to read more books before I have to start writing. And then after I'm done writing, I try to pick, you know, a few books that I like that I want to read. So I think right before I started to work on this book, I had like a whole summer where I read as many, um, comedic books as I could read that were written by women. So I read Mindy Kaling's books. I read uh, Tina Fey's Bossy Pants. I read uh, Amy Poehler's Yes, Please. I read Issa Rae's uh, Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl. So that was just such fun reading. And some of it was obviously very hilarious and some of it was really depthful. And so I felt really inspired by the work that female comedians are doing in their nonfiction books. 
And I think lately I am right now in the middle of reading Dr. Shaniqua Walker Barnes book, Too Heavy a Yoke, uh, which is a fantastic book about uh, the myth of the strong black woman. And it's about self-care. I mean, it's wonderful and very deep. I'm reading that. And of course, I have a long list of books that I would like to start. (laughs) 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 There wouldn't be a book with your name on the cover if that wasn't the case, or at least I'd like to think so. With the female comedians, are you indulging because it's fun and you need to be in a lighthearted place? Are you paying attention to the voice? Is there something else going on? I actually, as a little girl, wanted to be a comedian. Does that crack you up now? Like, how could that ever be? Or or could that have been a thing? Could that still be a thing? It's kind of funny because I just, I mean, you know, when at least for me, when I was a little kid, you know, that between five and 10 years old, I probably had like, felt like 17 different things I might have wanted to be when I grew up, you know, so some of it I just forgot. And within the last few years, as I've been building out my performance sets, like when I do like an hour of poetry, it's like a combination of me doing poems and telling stories. And several people have come up to me after those and said, you know, you should think about doing comedy because some of your stories were so funny, you know, and I, I think like when they said those things, it made me remember like, well, I, that was something that like little girl Amina wanted to be. I remember watching uh, Whoopi Goldberg's uh, Broadway show on VHS as an eight year old and just falling in love with that. So I think the form of comedy, I would never venture out to say that I'm a comedian because as a poet, I get a chance to make people laugh sometimes, but I can also you know, say a poem that's going to make people feel like they want to cry too. I can do both of those in my set. I don't have the pressure. So people that can make people laugh for an entire hour, (laughs) like I feel like that's like amazing. So I don't, I would not call myself a comedian, but I am very inspired by the art form itself. So I have studied it a lot and I watch comedians a lot in part because I wanted to see how they build their sets. Uh, I watched comedians to know how to build my set as a poet performing And I just I love the ability to captivate an audience with just yourself and a microphone. You don't have anything else. (laughs) It's just you having to keep them connected to you and in conversation with you. So I feel very inspired by it. So I love reading comedic work. And I really loved getting to read um, some female comedic writers. I mean, it was just really, really beautiful and hilarious to hear their perspectives. Yourself and a microphone and an audience. I can think of many adjectives that could describe that scenario. What does that feel like to you? It feels like amazing, like fun. What makes it fun? I think it's fun because, which of course, I just love doing stage work. So I think it's fun because when it's just you and a microphone and the crowd, it's like both parties have to fully participate. And when both parties are fully participating, it can be such an exhilarating experience. It can feel like this combination of you're in your living room, with people that you know and are familiar with, you're hosting people almost. There's some hospitality to me about being on stage, making people feel welcome to laugh, to feel welcome to cry if they want to cry, to feel welcome to relax and sit and be with each other. So I love that. It just, it feels comfortable to me. Do your sets vary? How does that work as a performance artist? Do you enter the stage and hit go or does it evolve depending on 
what you get back from your listeners? Some of the ways that I format my set are very similar to how I've heard a lot of comedians do their sets. So I'll know, like, I might know going in if I've got an hour that I'm going to do six poems and I'll know what those poems are. And I'll have kind of bullet points in my head about the stories or transitions that are going to go between the poems. And that's it. And every time I go on stage, I end up talking about something or telling some story that I did not plan to say. (laughs) And sometimes like the audience responds back in this way that you didn't know they were going to. And so then you respond back to that. So I kind of like to leave it where I would say pretty much is standard. Like when I go on stage, I know which poems I'm going to do, but the stories in between are kind of flexible. And depending on how much time I have, I may have, sometimes I'll have a couple of poems and I'm like, if I end up having extra time, I'll go into this one. But I like to leave it a little fluid. That way it can be some conversation between the audience and myself. Because that's the art form. Yeah. Okay, Amina, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book that's not for you, and what you've been reading lately, and then we'll talk about what you should read next. Oh my gosh, I think I'm ready. The only one I'm not sure I'm ready is I'm like, what is the book I don't like? Well, that doesn't come first, luckily. Oh, good, okay, okay, that's good. Okay, good, I'll work on that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What's your first favorite? My first favorite is... For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow is Enough by Intozaki Shange. Tell us more. This book is, it has like all these layers to it for me because it is a choreo poem. That's how Intozaki Shange describes it Uh, on the cover of the book. It is a choreo poem. So it is all poetry, but sort of weaved into this story. And I have also seen For Colored Girls performed as a play. So that book has lived for me uh, in two different formats. And each format was so beautiful and gut-wrenching at some parts of the story. But um, Intozaki Shange is just one of my favorite authors. But I think my mom bought me that book like in a bookstore somewhere in another city. My mom always loved taking us to bookstores and particularly taking us to black owned bookstores uh, in our town. And when we were out of town, she would do that. And if I remember right, I think she got me this book from a bookstore we visited out of town. And it just made me feel like my black girl voice had a place to belong And I think that was a really beautiful thing for me as a reader. And I think it was also beautiful for me in many ways in the future as a writer. What was it about the work that made you feel that way? Can you put your finger on it? I think some of the ways that she used language. I mean, I don't know that she would have described what she was writing as spoken word, but a lot of that language and rhythm uh, were definitely similar to me to what I know a spoken word is to me today. So some of it was that I think the ability to have seen that work, to have read that work in a book and have seen that work on stage was really a powerful translation for me to be able to see how the things we write can also have such power on stage too. Is that in part because 
with a performance as opposed to someone alone in their room with a book, which is powerful, but you don't see that from the outside like you do with a work like this. Right. Yes. I think it does make, I think it makes a really big difference being able to see that and being able to see how that gets translated. And I think I may have seen this as a play twice. So I've seen different, all of the characters in the book that I remember are women Uh, So having seen different women play these characters and how each actress translates that language differently. Oh, that's so interesting. It's amazing. Okay. I'm so curious where we're going to go from here. What's book two? Book two would be uh, Sumant Kids, When the Heart Waits, which is actually a book that I'm in the process of my second read. And Sumant Kids book, (laughs) you know what I just realized? I realized... I, in thinking about your question, I think I have in my mind three books I love, and I don't think that I put <laughs> a book that wasn't for me. I'm like, what is this? There are books that aren't for me? Anyway, <laughs> like, what is that? How can this be? Um, Sumon Kid's book, When the Heart Waits, is one of these books that I love and I hate when I read it. I love it because it's a spiritual book. And it just centers me so well. It is this book, interestingly, written about her time of midlife crisis, her time where she's approaching empty nest and all of the waiting involved in that time and the transformation and what she feels are the spiritual lessons and implications of that time. And when I started my first read of her book, I was in my early 30s, you know, just married, not having any children. So she and I are in completely different phases of life, but her book managed to really translate well to me. I hate the book because I don't like to wait. (laughs) (laughs) I just hate waiting. I think waiting is a terrible idea. So I read her book and I have moments where I'm like, man, I'm really glad I read that. And then I have other moments where I just want to close the book up and like throw it across the room and forget this whole thing even started. That seems completely appropriate to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, my second book that I love is Mindy Kaling's Is Everyone Hanging Out Without Me and Other Concerns. (laughs) I just love Mindy Kaling. My husband and I are actually watching back through the office episode for episode. And it has been now knowing what Mindy Kaling was going to become. It has been so amazing to sort of watch her character there and even just her behind the scenes writing of the show. But her book really freed me up as a writer because I loved that she remained so much herself. And even the parts of her book that were funny didn't feel like I'm trying so hard to make you laugh funny. Uh, They just came out um, just very, very naturally funny and very thoughtful. And I particularly loved this book. This was her, uh, I think this was her first book. Yeah. I particularly loved in this book, of course, getting a chance to hear how she's processing through this life that has been handed to her and that she never would have imagined this life for herself and all of the funny people that she's met and dates that failed and Oh my gosh, I loved it. I want to say this book, if I remember right, this book had a part where she just listed alternate titles 
to the book, like other titles that she thought the book could have. And I was like, this is amazing and unnecessary, but really amazing. Like, I'm glad that you put this here. <laughs> uh, someone else was just telling me about some lists they put in a book. Yeah, hmm. yeah. She definitely inspired me on that. So shout out to you, Mindy, because I know you're listening to this podcast. Well, I can't wait to. No, that makes me want to reread this. Oh, watching The Office again is a really good idea. Because I haven't seen it since I've written... No, since I've read her book. And it's been a couple of years since I've read this one. Okay, that sounds like a fun trip. Ooh, I thought of a book that wasn't for me. Let's hear it. I almost hate to say it out loud. I almost hate to say it out loud. It's like, there's like, I feel like a small amount of shame. Toni Morrison's Beloved. Ooh. And I'm a huge Toni Morrison fan. Like, I loved Sula. I loved... Song of Solomon. I loved The Bluest Eye. You know, like, I mean, I could just go on and on about her books. But Beloved, I just kept trying and trying. And I just could not. I don't know what it was about that book of hers that I could not, like, gather, like, who is alive? Who is dead? Who is the narrator? It's weird. Yeah. It is mm -hmm. definitely weird. There's a little bit of shame. I'm not going to lie. There's a little bit of shame. But that's the one book of hers that I, I don't think I own it because I feel like it would be hypocritical for me to have it here. <laughs> we don't want that. No. All right. Amina, I am eager to talk about your picks. And oh, I'm intimidated too. But we'll get to it right after the break. I'm staring at your favorites. Here's what I notice about them. <sighs> okay, they're written by three badass women, for one. They're very poetic, even the prose. I'll give Mindy that, I will. So Mindy's a little bit of the outlier. We're on a first name basis. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, yeah, I'm here for it. So she's a little bit of an outlier, but I feel like your books have this like, <sighs> they have this ache at the middle of them. Like this, ah. I can't, I can see it and I can feel it. And I'm really struggling with the words, but I just feel like they have this really important, difficult to express question at the center that matters more than anything. Does that sound, I mean, do you like <laughs> a conversation overheard among readers? Like, oh, I just like books that like have the, you know, the yearning in them. Actually, I was going to say the ache. People do talk about books that have a feeling of yearning and it doesn't sound creepy and weird. Like I might've just made it sound, but is, does that, is that fair? Is, do you like books that have that? Ugh. Yeah. It's, it's like if I, I either like books to have depth or if they are lighter written as far as the topic, like Mindy's book, then I like them to be written smartly. I feel like that's where I'm at on that. And I, is it coincidence or not that they're all written by women? Probably not because I'm going through a time. <laughs> I'm going through a time these last two years where I have focused most on reading more women than anything. And in particular, reading more women of color than anything, um, just because I'm like, I feel like I've I've read a lot of men and men have various good things to say. I'm not saying they don't, 
I just think there are a lot of women and in particular, there are a lot of women of color that are writing amazing things that I need to hear their voices and their books need the shine. So that's that has definitely been a thing for me. So there are probably a lot of books that came out and I was like, I just I got to really focus on the voices of women right now. And so that's 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 the phase I'm in. That's my reader phase. Okay. I'm going to try something I've never tried before. And I'm very curious to hear what you've read and what you haven't. Um, Once upon a time, I recommended a TED talk as a book. And we're not going to do that. But I do want to know if you're familiar with Ruby Sales. I know the name. Somebody actually just said her name to me recently. But I'm not familiar like with her work. Okay. She is not a writer. She does not have a byline. And she does not have anything you can go to the library and check out with her name on it. But because the spoken word is so important to you, I'm going to go with it. So your first pick is not a book. <laughs> oh, let's see how to, how to introduce you to Ruby sales. She's, she's a speaker. So she's a crafter of words, but I wish somebody would take her talks and put them in print and bound them in a pretty little, you know, like those short little books, like, um, yes. Like what's the one I can, I can picture them in the bookstore. I know which one you're talking what's about. What's the one I especially want to talk about the one by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie about, about like letters to my daughter, letters to your daughter. Oh, is it how to be a feminist? We should all be feminists. We should all be feminists. Yes. So I can see it like next to that in the bookstore. Uh, but I heard her speak at my church and she was amazing. Um, she's a civil rights activist. She's still living. She was born probably just after World War II. She's from Alabama. She participated in the Selma to Montgomery marches during the civil rights movement, 65. She was arrested. She, the story often told about her is that in one of these marches, she was, she was shot at by someone in the crowd and a seminary student took the bullet for her. I mean, stepped into the line of fire and died instantly. And that profoundly affected her herself as a person. How could it not? But also her uh, theology, because she has a lot to say about theological matters and her philosophy of activism. But why I like her for you is um, I heard her speak at my church actually in when sometime in the past year, but she talked about People who have hope in humanity or in in God, uh, however you fall, shouldn't be afraid of the dark because everything good grows and develops where you cannot see it in the darkness. And the way she talks about fear and yearning and strength and power and growth and justice is so powerful and is a place to listen to her speak because she's... So born in 48, how old does that make her? Um, She has a cadence to her voice and a rhythm to her speech that is really powerful. And she did an episode of On Being with Krista Tippett last year, who also knows how to throw a sentence together and deliver it in a way that makes you want to listen. How does that sound to you? I love it. I'm here for this. Okay. Can we count that as a substantial piece of craft to put into your life? Yes. Let's do it. I'm, I'm taking the notes. Yes. All right. Book two. What about Nikki Finney? Have you read her? I have not read Nikki Finney, but I know the, I know the name well. Yes. Nikki Finney. Yeah. 
Okay. That's a good one. I feel like as a poet, this could be a drinking game. How many times can Anne say poet? (laughs) That the element of discovery is important to you. So I don't want to say too much, but contemporary African-American female poet. This collection verges political. Not all her works do, but she takes everyday experiences and transforms them into something uh, deep and profound and way bigger than like in the title poem. She's talking about going, she's talking about visiting the fish market and saying how she wants to leave with basically her groceries, but she turns it into something about a lot more than groceries. How do you feel about reading poets as someone who, who works in the medium professionally? I think it's really refreshing. I, there's, I, I don't read poetry often because music is actually more of like my muse for writing poems. So um, I don't read poets often, but it's refreshing when I do, especially when it's a really good poet. Like Nikki Finney, <laughs> like she's really good. Because those are other books that aren't for me, which is bad poetry. Mm-hmm. I like the sound of that. Okay, book three. What do you know about The Street by Anne Petrie? Oh, yes, The Street. Yes, I've read that one. It's amazing. That's an amazing book. That was one of my first books I read out of college after being done with my English major. That was my fir- one of my first books I read for pleasure. That was not for a class or anything. Yeah. Awesome. It's fantastic. Okay. Another Brooklyn by Jacqueline Woodson. Ooh, I haven't read that one. Another book. Have you read Brown Girl Dreaming? No. Okay. Well, the reason I ask is because she got all the love for Brown Girl Dreaming. But Another Brooklyn was big news last August because this is her first adult novel in several decades. So it's set in Brooklyn in the 70s. It's a coming of age story about four friends going through the kind of things girls go through in an African-American community in 1970s Brooklyn. So family, friendship, love, trust, identity, crisis. Of course, some bad stuff happens. I'm here for it. All right. I love the sound of that. Amina, of those three books, what do you think you'll read next? Hmm. Dear, that's hard. Ah! I got to choose one. Dear. Okay. I'm going to go. I'm going to start with Nikki Finney. I love it. And I can't wait to hear what you think. I will report back. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Amina today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Amina and to let her know there what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 88. And it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Okay, readers, are you ready to hear which lucky reviewers will be receiving a free deluxe reading journal kit? That time is here. We have five users for you. I'm reading your Apple IDs. They are Esh1997, The Caffeinated Math Eat, Insta Yay, which that's adorable, J87 Fizzle, and Dana Beth C. If this is you, email Brenna, B-R-E-N-N-A, at modernmrsdarcy.com with your contact info, and we will get you that deluxe reading journal kit. If you did not win, but you need a reading journal kit in your life, you can find those in the shop, whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash shop. 
And we wanted to share this review. This is not a randomly selected winner. I'm sorry, just a great review. It's from Jenny Earl. She calls it learning what kind of reader I am. Here's what she says. I enjoy Anne and listening to her podcast has pushed me to think about what kinds of books I really enjoy and which ones I should just let go by. It's introduced me to some titles I love that I'd never have found otherwise and some that I dropped or just didn't love. It's caused me to think through why I read and to verbalize what I actually connect with in my favorites. I've learned to embrace that the kind of reader I am is just the kind of reader I am. A particular shout out on all the Kid Lit episodes, which my 11-year-old loves to listen to over and over. Thank you so much for that, Jenny Earl. If you're on Twitter, let me know there, at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there, at Ann Bogle, and at What Should I Read Next. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, Ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.